When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Farajasat and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, The Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle, and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now let's go to this week's episode. We think we're in the age of film or the age of rock music. But historians look back and say, no, you're in the age of television. That's the age you're in. This is the great medium of our time. I think the eight-year-old me is sort of preserved in amber somewhere. Uh, and I find it very, very easy to um, talk to. And I find it very, very easy to get inside his head. Listen, Jeremy Corbyn has an awful lot to thank Big Brother for, because that's a generation who understand one thing above all, and that's authenticity. I 
Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to try to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers and performers grow up to become such great communicators? If you enjoy this episode, do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if my guest today gets an answer wrong, he loses 10 points because with me is Richard Osman, the man who I think it's better to put the joy back into TV quiz shows. For years, he was a producer at Endemol, behind the camera, coming up with many formats and script writing for such shows as Total Wipeout, Deal or No Deal and 8 Out of 10 Cats. But since becoming the co-host of his own smash hit Pointless with his university friend Alexander Armstrong, he's a star in his own right. And Richard, you're not actually even a cult star. You're a primetime mass audience star. And I did a, a six-form kind of question time panel okay. with you on it. And I watched you mobbed by teenagers wanting selfies. And I also have a confession to make. I came on House of Games, your show, recently. Mm -hmm. And I told you it's one of the most fun days I've ever had. Oh, thank you. And the experience felt like the perfect dream version of a 1970s childhood Christmas. So I want you to take me back (laughs) to the 70s and your childhood and what was home like. Well, goodness me. I mean, the, the, the... The 70s would, would be split into two parts, the bit before my dad left and the bit after he left, I suppose. But um, I think I had a very kind of sort of happy childhood, or I felt it at the time. I came from a sort of a kind of lower, sort of a working class family that was just about blossoming into um, into lower middle class, uh, like most families in the 1970s. I had a close family on my mother's side and, you know, so... Christmases and all that kind of stuff was just a very big family occasion. And yeah, I just had uh, I had one of those childhoods where we had zero money, but I don't think I knew that at the time. And uh, that sort of serves me rather well in later life because now I've got a bit of money. I think uh, I appreciate it. And you've already mentioned your father. There was a trauma of your father walking out in the family when you were a child. What effect did it have on you? Well, I mean, if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said none at all. I would have said I took it in my stride. How old were uh, you? I was eight nine eight, eight, that sort of uh, that yeah. sort of age my brother was a little bit older so I would have said I held myself together very well but of course anyone who does that you get into your 30s you think oh I see I didn't hold myself together very well at all I sort of was pretending to be something um that I wasn't so I think it was a really formative um uh moment in my life um and you know I think that um I think that it was awful it was a trauma but you know it's the inability to deal with trauma is the only issue isn't it it's not the trauma we all have trauma and I think I I didn't deal with it brilliantly but I think since I have dealt with it better um a lot of people who grew up in the 70s did watch a lot of television and I think we also played a lot of board games what did you watch and play yeah I mean listen I'm I'm an absolutely there's lots of people who work in tv who don't watch tv which has always driven me absolutely insane I honestly they're very upper middle class on the whole I think I'm very unionized about all this I think I think if you didn't grow up what you think if you can't sort of take me through uh, Paul Daniels every second counts then I then I don't think you should be allowed to work in telly um, I think that uh, I watched non-stop television, even though we only had three channels. We didn't even get Channel 4, where I was, down near Brighton. Uh, when Channel 4 came out, we didn't get it for five years. You imagine that? You imagine the TV So that would have been 87 before you got a 4 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I talk mean, me through, what kind of stuff were you watching? Oh, well, I mean, literally everything. You know, <laughs> I would say, you know, um, game shows, you know, Family Fortunes, Bob's Full House, all that kind of stuff, blockbusters. I love things like superstars. Um, oh, I loved all. T- tell me on. about superstars because I think this is your favourite show. And remind me what it was. Superstars was a show that went from the seventies through to the eighties, which took sports people from different sports and made them compete against each other in lots of other sports. 
This season, the United Kingdom Superstars Championship is taking us to Grangemouth in Scotland, to the Whirl in the north of England, and then down to High Wycombe, just outside London in the south. Now we've come down to Wales for the final two days, the two days that are going to give us the new title holder, Britain's number one super all-round sportsman. We've actually come to Cumbran, where we've enjoyed their excellent facilities in the past. And quite honestly, the only thing that's not excellent at the moment is the weather. In fact, it's quite atrocious. And there was, you know, there's a big scoring system. And, you know, you'd see, you know, Malcolm McDonald from football swimming. And you'd see Brian Jacks, who was the greatest superstar of all time, uh, who was judo, but, you know, who would do basketball and would do squat thrusts and stuff like that. And, you know, it just had that amazing sense of competition and soap opera and numbers. Uh, all, ah. all of which, all of which um, delight me. See, I'm fascinated that's your favourite because I think it, it does show in the formats that you developed. My favourite show from that time was The Krypton Factor, yeah. which I think also reveals how high brass aspirations were in the 70s and how much less socially divided we were. Um, it was a show where you had very smart people who were also very fit going mm. through a kind of astronaut training programme for the sheer joy of it. Welcome to the Krypton Factor and six demanding mental and physical tests that make this the toughest quiz on television. Your show format seem to hark back to that decade, don't they? Well, I hope so. I mean, listen, I come, I'm come. i very much a product of, of my upbringing, which was, you know, a very broad, middle British, southern, you know, working-class upbringing. Uh, and now I find myself in a slightly more highfalutin world of people who didn't watch television when they grew up and... I want to pay tribute to the stuff that I loved when I grew up, which is incredibly inclusive and is, you know, for all the family and is for everybody, you know, wherever they are in, in society. And, you know, I think by and large that you want to watch telly that you find entertaining, but also you afterwards you sort of feel a bit better about yourself for having watched. You don't feel sort of dirtied by it. You know, if you watch Pointless or something, it is what it is. But at the end, you sort of at least feel, well, I put my brain through my paces. Yes. You know, I feel like I live in a slightly better place than I did before I watched it. That's a lovely phrase, putting your brain through your, its paces, because so much of the so-called competition on television now is about appearance, isn't it? It's about sort of social performance. can be, some things for sure. You know, I'm a, I'm a great defender of reality television, which is deeply, deeply unfashionable. But, you know, I would say... I mean, we made Big Brother for many years, and I would say if you properly want to be a, a, a sociologist or an anthropologist about it, you watch that television programme. By and large, the underdog has its day on that programme and the bully is found out and it rewards kindness and always has rewarded kindness. And I think a generation grew up with that. I often I was, um, went to speak at the Labour conference. They asked if I would go and speak and, listen, I don't have a dog in that fight, but I said I would. And I said, listen, Jeremy Corbyn has an awful lot to thank Big Brother for because that's a generation who understand one thing above all and that's authenticity. You know, they understand a personality that is true to itself, right? And that's why they, you know, they liked Jeremy Corbyn. It's in their DNA, they've grown up watching these programmes. People would always say, oh, it's not, you know, they call it reality TV. It's the least reality TV in the world. What about something like Love Island, though, now, which is quite yeah. controversial, isn't it? I mean, it? listen, Love Island is, uh, I don't watch it, I have to admit, but my daughter, who is a great deal cleverer than me, watches it and loves it. So, you know, and I know it's very well made. I'm not sure what it says to us about body image and what it says to us about that sort of thing. But I do, again, think that it is a vehicle for morality, and I think it's a vehicle for um, people behaving in the right way. And I think it's a, 
it's it's a vehicle that teaches us to be true to ourselves. And I, I, I know that's deeply unfashionable. And I know a lot of people would disagree with that massively. I absolutely get that. But there is a reason why these shows are popular. And that reason is not some flaw in human nature. I think it's some good part in human okay. nature. Well, we'll come back to talk about contemporary shows a bit later. I want to talk a bit more about your upbringing. Your mother retrained as a teacher when you were 13. What influence did she have on you? It's it's interesting. Uh, my mum, who's, who's who, who fortunately is, is still with us and still has strong opinions on many things, I think that myself and my brother. It's only me and my brother. This is your brother Matt, who is a he's, he's, he's a musician. You know, she came from a very uh, a family that was aspirational. My grandfather was one of nine brothers, and my mum, I think, is the only one who went into further education, and that it, that was very important. In my family, so I think that her ideal thing would be to have a, a doctor or a lawyer or an actual proper job, but she never ever once, which I, I've tried with my kids, told us what to do or what we should be or where we should go or what we should study or what we should aspire to. Never once, never told us to do our homework ever. I never did any homework. I didn't do it. I literally, I did none. And she would never make me, never put pressure on me in that way. You know, she was always supportive. Uh, and, you know, we rewarded her by going into jobs that um, I think she found very worrying. But I think now... Yeah, what, being a rock star in yeah, television? Yeah. And I think both now we're both around about 50 and we still <laughs> to, seem to be employed. I think she's um, I think she's come to terms with it. But, yeah, listen, uh, her, her thing was, you know, she was really pushed through education by my grandfather and her understanding of education as a primary school teacher was to never push to support but to never kind of push, and I think that was that led us both, uh, you know, into into interesting paths that maybe we we wouldn't have been led into. And your grandfather sounds like he was an important influence too. Yes, very much. So he was a he was a he was a professional soldier before the war, and then after the war was a police officer for many years down in Brighton, and one of eleven brothers and sisters. And yeah, education was his thing. And you know, my mum, I know, struggled educationally, and then my granddad took her aside and trained her up for the 11 plus and she got the best 11 plus mark in Sussex Uh, so we went to grammar school and all this kind of stuff you know he was from a generation who where you couldn't get out of the working class okay well that's which is what used to happen you know when they talk about the lack of social mobility but you know he was part you know my family was part of that great social mobility of the 60s and 70s which to my mind has nothing to do with grammar schools it just has something to do with sociology my proudest moment was when I graduated Cambridge and he was able to come up and come up to the graduation. And you think where from where he had come from, listen, from where I come from, it wasn't a huge leap to get to Cambridge because of the work that had been done before. But from where he had come from, to have a grandson who'd done that, I thought, well, that, that's a nice gift to him to say thank you for everything you did. Well, let's get on to uh, higher education. On the way to Cambridge, you did statistics O-level, you did sociology A-level. And with hindsight, they sound like actually rather useful qualifications for the work you do now. They're the only two things I ever really use is the truth you know I always think people I I don't like the phrase lies down lies and statistics because actually statistics are very important and numbers are very important actually there is often an objective truth behind things so numbers are very important to me but numbers by themselves are meaningless you know then you go well why is that number that is that number correct can I find out if it's correct why has that number happened what can I do to change that number and that's sociology and that's telling you that the world is not necessarily as you perceive it and the world is not necessarily as it should be and that you know you can you can influence uh, the way things are but numbers are like it's like a richter scale it's the first sign of the earthquake really and then it's you know i i think that those two things put together are what my entire view of the world is based on but also my my 
career. It's not, I ran Endemol for many, many years, and that was that was. If you ask me what my career was, it was that, and everything since has been a cul-de-sac. But every morning you get the overnight viewing figures, and that's every single rating, every single number for every single television show, how it did compared to other channels, how it did compared to last week, uh, how it compared to other things in its genre, uh, how it bills across an hour or, or declines across an hour. And that's, uh, that's like heaven to me because <laughs> I love watching telly and then, oh, my goodness, every morning someone sends me numbers. So. <laughs> I, well, you read sociology with politics at Cambridge University, mm. which is where you met your friend and your on-screen partner, Alexander Armstrong. And it's fair to say he has come from a much more privileged background. How important was that whole experience? I mean, it, it's interesting because I, I, I met him there, but we, we I didn't really know him particularly because he moved in a very different circle. I think there's certain that I went to Cambridge from a state school and you go there, you don't really know what's what, so you just meet your friends and you go out drinking like anyone at university, whereas people from certain schools hit, really hit the ground running there and understand what it is to be there and meet people. And when people talk about the old school tie or about, you know, Oxbridge Mafia, you think genuinely it's never, that's never been a thing in my life. I see that it can be for other people. My big thing with with people like Alexander was I obviously went there with an enormous chip on my shoulder about posh people, about public school kids. Uh, We should ever say you came from a comprehensive school. Yeah, and and you know what? You need a bit of fire in your belly, don't you, when you're 17, 18, and that, that was... My fire, I think. And then you meet people like Xander and lots of his contemporaries. You think, oh, man, they're so clever and charming and kind uh, and thoughtful. And I've always thought that about Xander and lots of other people I, I was with there. And we should say this is probably the mid-80s? This it? was the late 80s, the early 90s. Yeah, so still very much conservative years in terms of government. It was, and yeah, I think, I think Thatcher, Thatcher left on my 21st birthday, so that, which was a, a, a lovely gift. Um, and then, of course, you know, Major carried it on for a few years. No, but I met Zander and all of these people, and it does make you think. And I think that one of my one of the things I believe more than anything is is never judge people by their opinions, judge them by the, by their motives, because you know everyone has a different lived experience. Uh, and I think if Zander and I would disagree about stuff politically, which I suspect we do, uh, I don't think our motives are different. I think we want the same end. So how did you end up becoming friends and end up working together? Well, that was simply because so I was. I'd run Endemol for many years and we'd sold show after show. We sold loads and loads of shows and we sold this show pointless. And Xander had just auditioned for Countdown when Countdown, when the Countdown job was up. And we thought that's unusual because he was a high profile actor and, you know, we do have I Got News for You. And to want to do daytime television is quite unusual. So we thought, well, but if you do want to do daytime television, uh, then why don't you come and see us? And of course he walks in and I'm there and, he just it immediately just clicked and he wanted to do it. It was serendipity, I would say, which happens sometimes. And in also, TV. I suppose there's an authenticity about the mm. partnership. And it's 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 a, a very famous that you sat in for this role, not thinking you'd be doing it, but actually they wanted you then to be the co. Yeah, we would always do this. If you pitch a documentary, you pitch a documentary. You write a little proposal. You might cut a little tape and show it to a commissioner. But if you pitch a quiz show, no one understands quiz shows when you describe them. No, what you know, you, the second you start describing the rules to weakest link, you, everyone you know, glazes over. <laughs> yeah. So if you do a quiz show, you always play it through. Always take the BBC into a room, play an episode, and when we do that, I would always make sure that producers were playing the hosts always because they can they know if there's something a little iffy about the format and they know how to cover that up and all that stuff. So always have a producer doing it, which is what I did. They said, look, we want someone like you to do it. Would you be up for it? And listen, I got I was forty, and you know. We just sold Endemol. I felt like I'd achieved about as much as I wanted to. 
in that role. And he thought, well, I'm sort of looking for something else in my life, I suppose. So I'll give it a go. And I, this I'm not, is pointless. Yeah, this is pointless. And, you know, I'm not I'm not a natural extrovert, but it was a sidekick role. So I sort of think, well, that's yeah. a bit of fun. It's something to tell the grandkids about. And, uh, yeah, it led me into this very unusual world. And just because pointless is so loved, it seems a simple idea. Just talk us through how you came up with the idea of it. The idea is you have to try and guess the, the answer that the least number of people gave to Yeah, I mean, we like so often in television... Um, it's a rip-off, but it's a rip-off of one of our shows. We did a show called Beat the Nation on Channel 4, where I sort of obsessed, and again, this comes from statistics and sociology, obsessed with how difficult questions are on quiz shows and who was the judge of whether a question was difficult. Because a certain class of person would think that a certain type of question is difficult, like a question about uh, classical music, and a certain person would think a question about the Spice Girls was difficult. So on Beat the Nation, every single question we did, we asked to 100 people beforehand, absolute cross-section so I could tell you for a fact if a question was hard or easy and on that show you, the more people didn't know it, the more points you got and it was fine beat the nation and, and, it, and it ran for a couple of series but then we had this idea of you sort of you, you kind of and it wasn't my idea that you um, you hook it up to f- the family fortunes thing which is name you know a country in the world and you know you want to name the most obscure one possible so we sort of took one little mechanic Added it to uh, to a pre existing show, uh, and then, the, funnily enough, the second someone came up with the name Pointless, uh, and you start talking about we're having a pointless meeting, we got a pointless pitch meeting. You thought that oh, this is this has got a little something, and so people like the hook. There's only one person left for me to introduce. Barbara thinks he looks like Fireman Sam. He's my pointless friend. <laughs> He's Richard. Barbara was just telling me before. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'm... Yes, don't stop me giggling. That's, uh, that's, that's great. Yeah, Farm and Town. It's a great thing to look like. I mean, I thought it would go for one series, maybe two series, and I've, I've thus far been proved wrong. How many years has it been running for? Since Ten then? years now. And you've got spin-offs because there's the celebrity versions. Yeah, which is, which is huge. I think in terms of pound per viewer, it's the most successful show in British <laughs> television history, which is quite something. I was also wondering what it's like having a brother who's also in show business. I mean, mm. you know, he's in what was at first a hit 90s band, but it's still, you know, going and it's still kind of critically acclaimed. Uh, Matt was in Suede and is in Suede. And mm. I'm fascinated by the few great survivors of the 90s Britpop era who are still, to use that dreadful jargon, creating great content. Yes. But I wonder if it's a coincidence. Do you compare notes on how your careers are going? The fact that you're both still kind of in your prime. On a side note, I'm one of the few people who still, who, who, who believes that using the word content is a good idea because uh, it describes what I do. Listen, he's so cool, my brother, and, and I'm so amazingly proud of what he did because everyone's brother's in a band, right? And they absolutely, you know, they made it. And it's lovely seeing them now all back together, all sort of... All looking very fit, which tells you something about. Can I just give you my one suede story? I was yeah. once in a plane to Belfast to film my show uh, Sunday Morning Live, and I suddenly thought, I think that's Brett yeah. Anderson in front of me. And I looked around, and I was surrounded by all the members of Suede, and they were all wearing suits like an in Inception. Oh uh, yeah, I that felt, does surprise me. Yeah, it was. It was a I remember once being in Barcelona moment. for a festival, and uh, you're uh, walking down uh, uh, the Ramblas, and you know how beautiful and colourful that is. It was just like the colours and noises, and then suddenly just this wall of black comes down, and it's like five <laughs> members of Suede, like head to toe, in there. 
and I've, there's never been any competition between the two of us because very different worlds. And I would, I could never be in a band ever. It's not my thing uh, at all. My heart is from the mainstream, and his heart is he, he's very artistic. His heart is very much on the sort of fringes of things. Uh, and I think he's brought that into the mainstream, and hopefully I've brought mainstream slightly more to his side as well. But we we are we have very different sensibilities, and so I, I think, uh, certainly not to speak for me, we're very, very proud of each other. That's lovely. So much care and craft goes into your shows, the question formats, the fact that there's always a chance for the, whoever's behind to come back mm-hmm. in the next game. Yeah. Why does making this kind of TV matter to you so much? You really care about it. Uh, I do care about it because, listen, we, we, we're not on this earth for very long uh, and there are many great people who do many great things. You know, I'm not a heart surgeon, I'm not an engineer, I'm not any of these things. But, you know, I think that I think it's incredibly important to think about television in a certain way, I think you know we talk about film, film criticism, and we think we're in the age of film or the age of rock music. Uh, but historians look back and say, "No, you're in the age of television. That's the age you're in. This is this no, is the great medium of our time." No, that's really interesting. You say that because you'll know there's all this talk now about television is dead. The future is all online streaming. You've given me a look. Yes, tell me what why you disagree. Well, because television has, has literally never been. What, listen, that's why I said I'm. I'm still very comfortable using the word content because, you know, whichever, wherever you put it, BBC to Channel 4 or whether it's, you know, Netflix or whether you're streaming on YouTube, you know, it's still people coming up with stories and narratives and and, and formats to entertain you. And listen, it's in the corner of everybody's room. Pretty much everybody can afford it. It's it's such a sort of honour and a privilege to to work in that world if you work in the world of film and a million people are going to see your film that's like that's one of the biggest films of all time if you're in a band and a million people buy your record you're one of the biggest bands on the planet if you make a tv program and a million people watch it you're nothing it's literally you might as well might as well be zero you know you you're looking at you know eight nine ten million makes a huge hit television show and those numbers i don't think people really understand i don't think people the only thing that's similar is a supermarket or a political party these are the people where you need millions upon millions upon millions. And I think that you it's beholden upon people to make television as well as they possibly can. I think people think, oh, it's throwaway or it's um you know, it's 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 sort of some nonsense for the masses. And you think, well, do you know what it isn't? It's it's just about the most important medium there is. You ask a question about film on pointless. No one knows anything. The people who know stuff know it all. The second you ask about television, you ask about sitcoms, you ask about game shows. Yeah. Everyone knows everything, right? That's the age that we live in, and it's so huge and it's so in front of our face that we don't even notice it. You know, I think it's the most powerful medium, and my only job would be to try and do my bit of it as well as I can. Did you always want to work in TV growing up? Uh, that's a, it's such a good question because I wanted to be a sports writer, really, is what I wanted to do. What kind of sport? Oh, everything, everything, everything. And I never thought, I never, ever thought about television, only because I didn't know anyone who worked in television. I wouldn't, I just, I, I'm not sort you know, I'd always look at credits and stuff, but I didn't know anybody who did it. And when I left university, there was just an advert in the paper looking for researchers for something, and I thought, well, I'll do that. Uh, what was it? It was a, it was a, uh, um, a video games programme on Sky One, oh, and this is when Sky One was... This would have been 92. Yes, so and it early was days. very kind of, yeah, thrown together. And I thought, well, I'll give that a go because I'd just written an article funnily enough about computer games and I got in funnily enough I got into that job because the woman who interviewed me was a terrible reverse snob and she said well you went to Cambridge University what could you tell to somebody who lives on a you know council estate in Basildon 
I said, well, look, I was born on a council seat in Billericay. It's five miles from Basildon, so I, th- <laughs> I think I'll be OK. And that's what got me the job. And on the first day in that, funnily enough, I got in there, I thought, of course this is the job for me. This is literally what I've trained for my whole life. I've sat and watched television my entire life. I've invented little games I've, you know, forever and ever and ever. But in, for some reason in my head, it hadn't occurred to me that was a thing for me. But from day one, I thought, yeah, here we go. I found it. This is, this is where I should be. Tell me about the little games you were always inventing. Yeah, I mean, listen, I grew up in the 70s and 80s when we didn't have um, anything, did we? No internet, <laughs> no nothing, long summer holidays. Yeah. I would always, like I did a book last year called The World Cup of Everything, which was what's the best... Um, crisps what's the best chocolate bar you know what's the best animal what's the best british sitcom and stuff like that you play along at home and it's just a knockout competition but i used to do that when i was like nine or ten i'd do i'd write down the 30 my 32 favorite bands and then i'd draw them against each other and then i'd work out who my favorite band was and stuff like that you know i always loved doing that i do you know i'd invent cricket teams or football teams and let them play against each other i'd always be sort of lying down with a bit of paper and a pen funnily enough in the book the world cup of everything in the acknowledgements i thank 10 year old me I said, you know, I did my first one at 10, World Cup of Bands, and, you know, look at how I managed to monetize this. Uh, and I thought he might be quite proud of that. And so after this first job, you know, working on that video games program, what was your kind of career path to ending up running Endemol? I mean, fairly quickly, I went to a company called Hattrick, who, uh, who people will know very well do, um, you know, have I got news for you and whose line is it anyway? Father Ted, Dairy Girls, loads and loads of good stuff. And Jimmy Mulville, who ran that sort of saw something in me and 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 let me do sort of what I wanted really in fact the first thing I ever did there was a show with a guy I worked with in my first job called David Young who went on to form a company called 12 Yard which he sold for 40 million or something it was a comedy show and the two stars were uh, David Williams and Simon Pegg both of whom was their first ever job now that tape I don't think still exists anywhere but that was the first that was yeah. my first introduction to Hat trick, and in there I invented my own shows. I wrote a sitcom. I, I created and produced stuff. Remind us some of the things you created there. Well, there that was. I mean, my first job at there, I w- used to sort of work on Who Signs It Anyway, which was uh, a lot of fun. I did a panel show there called If I Ruled the World, which is still the biggest show in Sweden. <laughs> Funnily enough, <laughs> I still get royalties from Sweden, which 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 I appreciate. And I did a sitcom called Boys Unlimited when I was there, which is about a boy band starring a very young James Corden who uh, um, has since gone on to other things. <laughs> and so I'd been there a few years, and then a, a, a guy at Endemol, which was tiny when I went there, there's about 20 of them in a, a small house on uh, on Bedford Square in Bloomsbury, and the guy running at the time, a guy called Tim Hinks, knew me through this through someone and said, look, do you fancy coming along? And, and I, I got on so well with him, and TV is all about teams, about partnerships. You have to have a, you know, you have to have a creative partnership. And we got on very well. So I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll do that. That sounds like fun. And that was 20 years ago. And yeah, I've stayed there, stayed there ever since. And we went from 20 people to 9,000 people within kind of 10 years. So it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's interesting because... You appearing on camera and becoming a, a, a broadcaster is relatively recent, but as a producer, you have power. And I'm interested in how your voice works, how mm. you use your voice as a producer over that time. Well, it's fascinating as a producer. You know, I genuinely, my producing career was an enormous amount more successful than my presenting career. But I, you never, you know, I would never be interviewed about it because the second you're on screen, there's some sort of magic, there's some kind of alchemy that happens, and people absolutely lose their minds. You know, if you make an idea, certainly the way we do it. You know, if you do a quiz, you play it through a hundred times before anyone ever sees it. You know, you'll sit and play it and play it and play it and change it and make it better and make it worse. You know, if, if you, 
whatever big hook you've got in the middle of it, everything around it has to work perfectly. And I love that process of just refining, refining, refining. And then, you know, the second you've got something good, you take it to the BBC or ITV or Channel 4 and try and sell it. And I love to sell as well. Do it you? Is my, oh, I, love, I love to sell. It's my, well, I love to sell if I think it's something that someone should have. You know, I love being able to persuade someone that I've got something great for them. So is that a different kind of voice that you have to use, a different persona uh, you're selling? It's a, I don't think it is because it's it's the same instinct of, you know, someone sitting across from me on the table when I'm selling something to them is exactly the same as a TV viewer other than they've got £3 million to spend on something. Yeah. And, you know, I've got the thing that I think they might like. What's the thing you're most proud of having made a success and sold? That's a very good question. The first show I ate at the world, the first massive show that was mine was a show called Survivor. We're now several hours into the journey to the remote island of Pulau Tiga. The survivors are trying to rest, conserve their energy, and they'll need all the strength they have. They volunteered to be marooned for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the story of their survival. Survivor is essentially what turned into Big Brother and all of that. It's the biggest, the biggest format in the history of television it's just some people stranded on a desert island uh and you know they they're allowed to vote each other off that that's the basic principle and there's been lots of different iterations of that in a rare um display of bin highbrow i went to see we clo at the edinburgh festival head as other people and i thought well that's interesting and then when i was at planet 24 there was a boss who i thought god it's only because you're the boss that anyone is listening to you at all i wonder what would happen if if week by week we could vote off the least popular member of staff and you know i think he'd be the first to go uh and i put those two things together really and just survive i've never made a penny out of it which is absolutely fine but uh you know that was one i'm very proud of because i think it kick-started a lots of different television you know lots of the tv the first reality tv show really and that was a tv show when yeah. in america what, what were the spin-off effects of that show well survivor led to led to every show you've ever seen where people get voted off yeah. essentially so that leads to big brother that leads to you know pop idol and x factor taking over from opportunity knocks you know it leads to that the soap operification of those sort of talent shows and, uh, and, and and documentaries. So I did that. But in terms of game shows, I mean, we took, um, and more credit has to go to Glenn Hugo, we took Deal or No Deal, which was a small end game of a, of a Dutch lottery show and turned it into, you know, this sort of uh, this, this, this sort of powerhouse in the it's UK. It's about opening boxes. Yeah. That exactly. Noel Edmonds presented in the UK. Yeah, exactly. And that was, that was the, I mean, I think I could be, I, I could be misquoted. I think that ended up being more profitable than Big Brother for us. Because of various spin-offs, that was a, that was a proper, and and also a show that I genuinely think is a gr- just a great Rolls Royce of a format. always seem to have had this childlike sense of fun about the business that you take very seriously, which is devising game shows. But you're never childish. And mm. I wonder if you're conscious of that. I think that... I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question. I have a very short attention span. I'll certainly say that for me. I think, listen, because, because my dad left when I was young and I, and, and I probably didn't deal with it as well as I could, I think the eight-year-old me is sort of preserved in amber somewhere. Uh, and I find it very, very easy to um, talk to, and I find it very, very easy to get inside his head. And you know that the, the young childish me was all—you know—anyone who's a young 
kid, you're interested in what's new, what's next. You know, anything you watch, anything you see, it gives you an idea for something else. Or, you know, you, you, you're seeing things new for the first time so, so much and your brain is constantly making little connections. And I think that's, if I have any skill, it is that. It's to, it's to make connections and put things together that haven't been put together before. I'd like to have a bit more earnestness, if I'm honest, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take the amount of childlessness I have. There was a seven-figure bidding war for the rights to your first novel, which is a crime thriller coming out in 2020. Mm. Again, it feels like something you've put real care and effort into. What is it about? What can you tell us? And it, why did you write it? Uh, why did I write it? I wrote it... Well, I've, I've always been a writer. It's something... I'd always wanted to do so. It's not something I thought, oh, that's something to cash in on. I've always wanted to write a crime book. And actually, my kids are a little bit older now. And about 18 months ago, I thought, I do actually have some time now. And I had this idea. I'd been to visit a retirement village, like a very high-end retirement village full of very bright people in their 70s and 80s. And I thought, wow, this would be great. And it's beautiful and it's sort of 50 acres of rolling countryside. And I thought this would be an amazing place for a murder. And also I thought, I bet these people here would be able to solve that murder. And so that sort of gave me the idea, and it's this thing, the Thursday Murder Club, about four retirees in their 70s and 80s. One used to be a spy, one was a trade union leader, one was a nurse, one was a psychiatrist. And each week they sort of they, they meet up and look over old unsolved cases. Uh, and then there's a real murder, and they involve themselves in that murder. As soon as I started writing that, and got the voices of those characters who who who, who delighted me. I, you know, I couldn't stop. It's fascinating as well because you have this background both in creating games and then also in having worked on sitcoms and things. So much of what you're successful at is putting real characters into a kind of game show scenario, which a murder mystery is, as mm. much as something like House of Games, where you're pitting different people yeah. against different rounds. Well, I hope the book is very real. Um, I'm not interested in. I don't. I'm not really big on sci-fi and, and fantasy and stuff like that. I like things to be. I like the real world, but you think, yeah, but what would happen if? You know, I find that mm-hmm. interesting, and that's the voice I'm able to. Um, I'm able to write in, I think. But um, listen, I, I hope that. Um, I mean, it is a puzzle, and I enjoyed the puzzle of writing it, and I hope people enjoy the puzzle of working it out uh, as well. But it's been. Listen, it's an encapsulation of everything I've done, really, the voice of it. You just think, oh, OK, that's that's the thing that I've been edging towards. How, how, how do you mean it's an encapsulation of everything you've done? Uh, when I read it through, I sort of, I, you know, I was, I was talking to Ian Rankin, the crime writer. He said, look, finding the voice is the key if you want to write. The plot and all that kind of stuff, That's if you've got it, you've got it. But if you don't have a voice, you've got nothing. And I read it through. Oh, OK, the stuff that I thought was a bit wasn't as good as other books about it is my voice I get it I get that and I get that it's I get that it's a kind of very sort of lower middle class sensibility but but that's able to kind of go across you know different generations and different classes and stuff like that you know I I feel slightly stateless in that regard there's no jokes in it but I think it's funny uh, and it's hopefully very loving about people but at the same time it has a you know an awful murder at the heart of it, and a mystery, and something meant something you know something kind of wrong has happened, and and you know that that someone needs to fix. What I really pick up talking to you is how much you care about democracy, how authentic your passion is for what you do. And um, it's really interesting that you're interested in reality and not kind of fantasy. And I was thinking back to the thing about the seventies, especially the early seventies, is if you look at the data, and this is the one stat mm. I know is um, <laughs> we never had uh, more social equality. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, yeah. the sort of earnings divide was very, very low, and that was partly to do with things like high taxation. But yeah. 
upper middle class people were more, or certainly middle class people were more likely to go to the same schools as working class people then compared to now. And I, I wonder if it means that someone like you is particularly well equipped to be looking at the kind of challenge of modern Britain. So and that's my question I'm leading up to is, as someone whose programmes genuinely cross class divides, you even co-presented an election night show. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think about going into politics in some way to heal the nation, Richard? Well, listen, the, I'm, I'm very interested in healing the nation. You know, the thing, the thing that upsets me most about politics at the moment is, is the way we've lost the ability to speak to each other and the way we've lost the ability to disagree with each other. Listen, I think our current political system, certainly our party system, is done. I think, I think it's cooked. I think, um, listen, we're, we're living in the, with the last swish of the dinosaur's tail at the moment, is my opinion. So what comes up to uh, replace that, of course, that's, a, that's a, an opportunity but also a terrible danger isn't it? Because, you know, anyone, you can take advantage of a vacuum, and a vacuum is essentially what's been created, in my opinion. I could be very wrong about that. So quite how one gets involved in politics these days, I think, is a very interesting question, because I wouldn't do it by being a Labour, Liberal, Tory councillor. I wouldn't do it by becoming a prospective parliamentary candidate or anything like that. The people I admire most are people who are just... Whatever is happening in the world, they're getting on at community level of doing extraordinary things for people and helping people and activism, which is something that I don't have the gene for, but I admire enormously. Who do you admire? Well, I admire anyone with with the community spirit to actually get out in their community and help people and put their money where their mouth is and put their time uh, where their mouth is. And if I had a role to play... I would always rather be a behind-the-scenes advisor. Yeah, I was just thinking with your... with You know, you look at data and I... I just think, is there a role for a consultant? Yes, I'm sure. But, you know, you need a front man or a front woman is the truth. And um, Farage is a, is a, is a terrific front man for the, the, for the things that he represents. Well, also people are talking about Dominic Cummings, you know, who's been brought in, who ran the kind of Leave yeah. EU campaign, seemed to be a bit of a producer with a kind of game show idea of how you win the EU referendum. Yeah, well, listen, it's, a, it's, it's not even a game show. It's just understanding why people do what they do, why people like what they like, why people vote for what, for what they vote for. So much of what people say on social media and this, that, the other, I see what is the, what are you trying to achieve by doing that? That's a question I always ask myself if I'd say anything at all. What is the end goal there of saying that? I read a lot on Twitter from people on the left where I think, I think you're doing the opposite of what you're saying you're doing here. And I think you're adding fuel to a fire. And I think possibly you are trying to make yourself feel a little bit better. And listen, I understand. We've all been driven insane. Okay, I get that. Um, but I do think some people have to have to hold uh, have to hold themselves together and just say, no, actually, uh, you know, we want to achieve something, right? We want a world that's fairer, more equitable, a world of greater opportunity, a world that's kinder, uh, a world that's more socially liberal, right? Those are the things I think we can mostly agree on. And certainly, if you want to win an election, there are enough people in the country who agree with those things to do it. Uh, and you think, well, why is that proving so difficult? Why are we? What? Why are we not able to join together and, and work that out? And you know, it's a lot to do with the way we speak to each other. It's a lot to do with the way we communicate at the moment. And the right, who you can decry them as thick all you want, but they have absolutely one hundred percent taken charge of the discourse in this country and how it's run, and how we see political debate in this country. You know, it's led and run by the right now. They've absolutely done a number on the left, a hundred percent. At some point some brighter people on the left, I think some of them have, have spotted it, they need to do something different about it. They need to respond in a different way. If uh, you were approached, would you be up for? No, well, it depends who approached me. But no, I, I suppose not. 
I, I, I genuinely, I'd be more interested in doing working on projects and working on education projects and working on community projects than uh, working on a, a project of power. If there was someone I thought I would like you to be our prime minister and there's something I could do to help, I one hundred percent, I would. I'd be interested in, in in helping someone get power. I wouldn't be in, interested in having any power. I have to say. What next? I know you've written a book and it seems unfair, mm. but do you yes. have a, a game plan? Uh, well, I've, I've got to write the next book. Uh, is it a sequel? Uh, it is a sequel, yeah. Every, pretty much everyone who survives from, from, the, from the first book is, is in the second one. Um, well, listen, as I said, when I was 40, I sort of felt like I'd, I'd done my TV exec and we'd sold the company and all that malarkey. You know, now I sort of feel, as I'm approaching 50, which is just, I'm not going to handle well. Uh, I feel like I've, I sort of, I, I love doing TV and being in front of camera, but, you know, maybe maybe enough of that now, a little bit. And so the writing, I think, interests me for the next few years. But then some sort of... You know, I've said a number of times that I'm not an activist and, and I admire people who are. And I need to find something inside myself that allows me to do that and be that and to, and, to, and to get involved in something where I can make a proper difference. I haven't found my voice in that regard yet. Interesting. Richard Osman, thank you so much. Pleasure. You've been listening to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer is Farah Jasset. If you enjoyed it, do go and rate us, leave us a lovely review on Apple Podcasts and you can check out our previous episodes. Hello again, it's Farah Jassat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dart charge included. Download the Out app today. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.